90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, pretty good. Had a nice uh, faux-pas today here in Norman, so it went from about um, 90 degrees to 50 degrees. So I don't know if you missed that about Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, I sort of experienced it. Uh, oh, yeah, I right. am in Boulder right now, that's Boulder, right. Colorado. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yesterday, when I was looking at the weather conditions, it was 76 here, and <laughs> I landed, and it was in the 40s, fogged in, I could see my breath, and it was drizzling. Ah, <laughs> uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get any of the drizzle to go with it, but that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, this is another hotel room recording. We'll see how this works. Uh, (laughs) I am traveling with our blue snowball guest microphone because I found out last time I traveled with the Rode Podcaster, which we normally use, it looks like a silencer in the airport x-ray machine. Oh my gosh. I guess they don't want you to, you know, carry that around. (laughs) Yeah, there was definitely some confused uh, confused looks, and of course, then they unpacked my bag and swabbed everything and, uh, so for uh, those of you that don't know the, the the snowball mic looks like a snowball it's just this big round ball so very different right from yeah a silencer. And I, I have no idea what its audio quality is going to be like in here but we're going to give it a shot yeah yeah great well i think our our guests or our uh, listeners are used to it so that's okay yeah <laughs> so you picked an excellent topic for this week because one of the big news stories has been hurricane matthew uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I realized that, shockingly, we hadn't talked about hurricanes yet. And so, as I started to put the show together, I realized we probably have eight shows about hurricanes. But especially for those of us um, in the middle of the country, I thought that maybe this is a good idea to just talk about some hurricane basics in general. Just what they are, how they form, what do you need? What are good ingredients to bake the perfect hurricane? Because as you said, um, Hurricane Matthew is shaping up to be a very expensive, expensive hurricane. Yes, it definitely is. And I, I was surprised too that we hadn't done a hurricane show yeah. when we pointed that out. <laughs> uh, so this will be a back to basics. And then we'll probably go in maybe next week to a little mm-hmm. bit more depth because I obviously am going to want to talk about all of the cool instrumentation that we use. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, We're going to try to stay away from all of that this week and just whittle it down to, besides a really big storm, like what what is a hurricane? Because as I said, most of us center of the U.S. dwellers are really more concerned with tornadoes. Right, yeah. So, I mean, we see on the Weather Channel... And we see radar when they're close to land that hurricanes are these big counterclockwise spiraling storms, but they have really, really high sustained winds and they do a lot of damage through several mechanisms. Right, exactly. Um, So there's a certain time that hurricanes form, right? And we're right in the middle of that kind of. Um, In the Northern Hemisphere, hurricanes form June 1st through November 30th. That's really hurricane season. And so that's why right now we have a lot of hurricanes. Nicole's out there turning right now, um, and Matthew's still heading out to sea. So we're in the prime time of creating hurricanes. But you kind of need very specific things, which is why they only form during a certain time period, in order to get a good hurricane. 
Right. And the first thing that you should think about when we say this time period is this is when the ocean is going to be very warm because it's had all summer to heat up. Right. Exactly. And we talk, we're talking really warm. Um, and I apologize. Everything is in English units. <laughs> yes, because that is how we do meteorology in the U.S. <laughs> right. Exactly. So that's how I left it. Um, but we're talking about warm water above 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And the deeper that warm layer is, the better. So if you can get it a 200 foot deep warm layer, that's pretty primo for hurricanes. And I mean, not just this time of year, but also something we talked about before in the show, uh, El Nino's really juice this up for Pacific hurricane formation, because that is by definition, really warm sea surface temperatures. Right. And I just went ahead and converted that for everyone else. It's not in the US. <laughs> That's about uh, 26 Celsius water for about 61 meters depth. 61 meters so precise well it's um, 60.96 if you must know oh okay well that makes a big difference <laughs> yes <laughs> so besides this warm ocean we also need convergent surface winds so you need to start sort of the makings of this upward motion that creates a storm and then light upper level winds so and I think we need to step back and unpack that for a little bit. Oh. Because convergent <laughs> surface winds are something that you and I are very comfortable saying. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> but probably don't mean a lot to other people. So convergent surface winds is when you have winds that are coming together. They are converging. And because of conservation of mass, we're not going to be putting this air down into the water. Right. And it has to go somewhere. So mm -hmm. it's going to go up. Right. Which is your first ingredient for any sort of storm, not just a hurricane, is that you need rising air. Um, and to go along with that, you need light upper level winds or virtually no wind shear. And because you want this rising air to keep rising and not get blown away by some really high upper level wind shear. So convergent surface winds, light upper level winds. Right, and there are some thermodynamics that go along with making sure that the air parcels stay buoyant as they yes. go up. Yes, But I the converging surface winds help lift them up to that level where they can go ahead and convect. The level of free convection. Right, exactly. And so you also need another ingredient once you've lifted these parcels up to the LFC, and that's moisture. You can't have a storm, any storm, without moisture, right? Right. Exactly. So... Now you've got the good cookings for what we would call atmospheric instability. And so, you know, you put all this in the ocean and you stir with a stick and wait yeah. for a few days. Yeah, that's and basically <laughs> it. <laughs> well, but you do have to have some kind of catalyst, right? So you've got some kind of pre-existing disturbance that comes out over the ocean and really kicks all this off. Right. And so you got all those ingredients in place and now you've got this pre-existing disturbance. And so we're going to start with the first sort of phase of the storm which is just going to be a tropical cyclone all that is is just like a storm that we would get you know over the u.s over the land it's just a rotating low pressure system except for it has no frontal boundaries right and then as that tropical cyclone either strengthens or doesn't it might become a tropical depression well it's gonna have to strengthen into a tropical depression right okay fair that was bad <laughs> So as that tropical cyclone continues to go out, it could weaken and go away, or it could strengthen and become a tropical depression. 
Right. And so because we're scientists, we have very specific definitions for the distinction between these different storms. And a storm becomes a tropical depression when you have sustained wind speeds of less than 39 miles an hour. So you were making fun of me yep. for 61 meters. <laughs> Look, I'm sure 39 miles per hour is a very specific reason. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, I've tried knots. I've tried meters per second. I can't get it to come out to anything very meaningful. I couldn't either. I, I, th- I thought that knots was going to get me there, but it didn't. So <laughs> that was my that was the first thing I tried too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> so to get even more specific, your tropical depression is going to grow up into an even bigger storm, and once it crosses that seventy-four mile per hour boundary, you've now got yourself a hurricane. Right, and so that is a sustained, all of these should be, we should stress, they're all sustained winds. Right, exactly. These aren't like wind gusts or anything like that, how you would measure. This is the constant wind speed. And that's fast. It really is. Like, (laughs) I always think, you know, when I look at the scale, which we'll talk about, the Saffir-Simpson scale, you know, it's a big wind speed range, but 74 miles per hour is nothing to nothing to shake a stick at i mean those are damaging storm winds anywhere and these aren't just gusts now we're talking about that's what the wind is all the time in a hurricane i mean next time you're driving down the road at about you know 75 yeah speed limit on an interstate (laughs) here uh yeah stick your hand out the window yeah it's pretty good (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's it's a lot of force on that small area. Uh, right. And it's not just the winds, but we'll get to that later. Um, before we go on, we call these storms hurricanes, but they're not called hurricanes everywhere, right? Right. <laughs> this is actually quite confusing. Yeah. So if you're in the North Pacific, you will hear them referred to as typhoons. And so they're just called tropical cyclones in the Indian Ocean. Um, which is what we call, you know, just the actual first storm. So that's a little confusing. Um, and they're also just called cyclones in Australia. And of course, right. they, and of course, they rotate a different direction. But that's a whole nother Coriolis Force episode that we'll have later. <laughs> right. I mean, everything's upside down, right? Yep. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yes, and you know, I mean, you'll hear sometimes high pressure systems in the U.S. referred to as anti cyclones. Right. Exactly. Or anti-cyclonic winds right. in a high-pressure system. So lots of confusing terms. But hurricanes, for our purposes, are going to be cyclones with a sustained wind of greater than 74 miles an hour. Right. And sometimes they just do their thing and die out. But it seems like more often than not recently, they end up making landfall. Right, exactly. Um, when I was starting to look up some of the stats it seems like we focus obviously a lot on hurricanes that form in the atlantic um because hurricanes that form in the pacific well the pacific waters off the coast of the u.s are you know a lot colder and even around hawaii they're a lot colder so they're just not as strong and a lot of pacific hurricanes are out where there is nobody and so we actually didn't have good data on even the number of hurricanes that form in the pacific until we started getting really great uh satellite data back so i thought that was pretty interesting yeah yeah i guess that makes sense so i remember buying a book when i was in hawaii which was quite a while back it would have been probably 2007 or so Mm -hmm. that was first-hand accounts of one of the major hurricanes to hit the islands 
And I'm going to have to go back and look that up because I don't really remember much about it. Uh, yeah, I actually read a little bit about it, even though I focus mostly on Atlantic hurricanes as well. Um, so I thought that was interesting. There's a lot of indigenous stuff, especially because there's a lot of Caribbean islands that were populated by indigenous people. So I feel like there's a lot more lore surrounding these Atlantic hurricanes, but... We're getting ahead of ourselves. We've just made our hurricane. Now it's got to fully develop into its richness that it can be. And these are really big. Yeah. So hurricanes can be about, you know, well, on average, I guess, they're about 300 miles across. Which is big. Which is quite big. But they can get bigger, right? Exactly. Um, I think the largest one I found was like 695 miles across, which is, you know almost across the u.s i mean it's not quite like the perfect storm no but it's still pretty big but it's pretty big Uh, (laughs) it's always weird to think about um hurricanes because we get so focused especially here in oklahoma i mean hyper focused on tiny little bitty storms that are a mile across you know (laughs) that create these tornadoes which are still devastating but hurricanes are just something of this massive scale that i think it's hard for us to fathom um because hurricanes are not just wind like we talked about it's not just a big mass of clouds um but the rotating hurricane is made up of rain bands or these big spiral arms and in those spiral arms which can be up to 30 miles across and 300 miles long each are just thunderstorms but when you look at the satellite image of a hurricane you just see a big disc yes Because at the top, you've got all this rising air and you get these really high cirrus clouds. So cirrus clouds are those ice clouds that are at the very top um, of the lower levels of the atmosphere. But if you see a radar, so you've got to get close to land. um, But if the hurricane gets close to land, you definitely see those bands in radar. Because radar doesn't see the clouds, right? It only sees the precip. Um, So that's where you'll see those bands. Right. And actually, it was a lot of fun with Matthew. You could see reflections in the eye of the hurricane as it got close enough to land to be picked up that were uh, birds trapped in the eye. Wow. That's unbelievable. So yeah, you had these very high aspect ratio bio reflections from inside. And so you know they're birds and not rain because the eye of a hurricane is clear, which we'll talk about here in a second. Right. But it's pretty interesting some of the things you end up finding when you get uh, in radar range. (laughs) yes i think we could do a whole couple of shows about that yeah (laughs) so but you to go back to where you were you said that there were thunderstorms in these bands and thunderstorms are something that people in oklahoma understand very well and the hazards that come with them which are tornadoes and this can happen in hurricanes too (laughs) (laughs) i remember being like shocked at this i don't know why this was shocking but you can have tornadoes happening within these rain bands within a hurricane so that's pretty awful like that's the magnitude of awfulness like (laughs) i mean the most we ever feel is sometimes occasionally if one comes up the gulf we'll get some of the moisture from it you know but that's unbelievable to me and i remember thinking wow that's a that's a pretty big deal but in addition to we can make it more awful yeah Uh, exactly yeah you've got thunderstorms you've got um winds winds. that are yeah Yeah. 75 miles 74 miles per hour or greater (laughs) but you can also get massive rainfall rates up to six inches an hour 
And this is one of the huge hazards is the flooding created by these. Right. Exactly. And, and that's what we're seeing with Matthew now, too. I, I think I saw something in it was some county in South Carolina was going to have zero bridges that were not underwater. Yes. Because of Matthew. like That's unreal. Unreal. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, with Katrina, there is huge, huge amounts of flooding. Uh, but you also can actually get the storm surge as well. Right, exactly. So that's in addition. It has nothing to do with the rainfall at all. Um, so the hurricane sits there and it's churning and churning, right? And as those winds are circling around, it acts to pile up water beneath the storm. So as you're piling up this huge mound, and that's what it looks like, you get a huge mound of water. Well, when the storm comes ashore, what happens to all that water? It comes ashore, too. Exactly. <laughs> and to make it even worse, the low pressure from the storm raises sea level on top of all of that. Right. Exactly. It's like a big straw sucking a huge mound of water up in there. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> based on your... I thought this was interesting, too, because I didn't quite think about this, but the gradient of your coastline, so if you've got a nice sort of ramp up from deep water to shallow water, like in the Gulf, that actually makes the storm surge worse because there's nothing to break that big mound of water. And it just, all of it piles up on land. So if you had a big drop off, you wouldn't be as affected by storm surge as you are if you've got a gentle coastline. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. It was not something I had um, thought about. Yeah. Yeah. That's surprising, actually. Yes. Okay, so so we've got these bands, we've got this rainfall, but a little bit ago we talked about the eye of a hurricane, and we haven't really defined that yet. Right, so I think because you can see that in satellite, I think that's sort of one of those defining features. In fact, it's the little, the little weather symbol for a hurricane is a circle, which is the eye, and then some little spirals coming off of it to represent those rain bands. Um, so why is the eye clear? All right, so the eye is actually a region of subsidence which is the fancy meteorological word for <laughs> sinking air hey it's the fancy geology word for sinking too okay <laughs> yeah but for sinking <laughs> plates yeah or... that's true <laughs> um right so you get rising air sort of around the eye wall which is the big cloud part um but then in the very center you have this cold sinking air it sinks down it gets down to the warm air that's already in the hurricane or the warm sea surface, and you just start that process all over again. But that sinking air is what clears the area of clouds. Therefore, you get to see the eye. Right. And so that would be the really calm blue sky part of the storm with right. the terrifying massive clouds. Still to you. come. Yes. <laughs> I can't think of anything crueler, right? I mean, if you get, you're getting all this just beat up by this hurricane and then here's this eye that comes through and you think maybe it's over and then it's not you know i wonder what the first sort of the people that first experienced hurricanes thought about that that's kind of crap yeah it's true You're like oh yay and come yep. out of your shelter nope. here it comes again <laughs> yeah so but one question that we still haven't fundamentally answered is why are there why do we need hurricanes i mean they're obviously doing something for the earth system and it turns out that they're one way that we take all the excess heat from the tropics 
and move it north to the colder regions because ideally we want to have this uniform temperature, uniform atmosphere that the Earth is continually trying to get to but never does. Right. I thought this was really interesting. Um, so we call hurricanes heat engines, and we say that for a reason. Um, they're powered externally by these warm ocean waters, and then they're powered internally by the latent heat of condensation, which is also a fancy meteorology thing. Well, it's not just a meteorology thing, but in this case it is. Right. So you have water vapor, and you condense it, and then that releases energy. Right. Quite a lot of it, actually. Um, right. And so these big chugging heat engines um, transfer that heat to work on our global uh, global temperature balance. And that's a really kind of neat thing to think about. Right. So we actually need them. I have a, a sign up. Them are uh, actually not really a sign, but it's two pages from a Time magazine, probably in the 70s, maybe a little earlier, in my office, where they were proposing to use, like everything at that time, nukes to blow apart <laughs> hurricanes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that would have been good. <laughs> yeah, and that would have been a really bad idea because we need hurricanes to transfer heat. It's part of the Earth trying to balance out the atmosphere. Right, exactly. So you're going to cause all kinds of worse things, which is just a whole nother, you know, geoengineering problem that I'm sure we could talk about for a long time, too. <laughs> Because we've tried right. to do this for storms, too, right? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's pretty, that is pretty interesting. Hmm. So, hurricanes are also unique in another way, is in that uh, we treat them sort of like children. Yes, they are the only weather phenomenon that we name. The only and one. <laughs> you do not believe the Weather Channel when they name winter storms. It's yes. complete garbage. Yes, it is complete garbage. Um, yeah, yeah. Hurricanes deserve a lot more respect than that. Number one, I mean, winter storms could be pretty bad too, but that's only a that's only a media hype thing giving winter storms names. So hurricanes have their own names. There's a very specific schedule of names. We always alternate a male name with a female name, and then if you're a really big hurricane, your name gets to be retired right so things like katrina or bonnie or andrew or andrew yeah camille yep so we don't use those names anymore and they go out of rotation right and so i mean maybe we should start having i'm sure there has been a hurricane grace actually but yes uh you have in here that Though hurricanes are this heat engine that we talked about, and we name them, and we affectionately follow them, we're actually pretty lucky because they're not very efficient at their job. Right, exactly. Uh, I was really surprised by this. Um, so they convert less than 5% of their energy, so that energy that they're creating, into wind and waves. <laughs> so that's good. Five. Uh <laughs> yeah, 5%. <laughs> uh, right, so the rest of it dissipates it's just not it doesn't go into doing anything so thank god for the inefficiency of that engine right i mean there's all kinds of convective processes going on and yeah other things that can take up some of the energy uh, right but um, it is a lot of energy exactly that's what i was just going to ask so it's five percent of what though like what kind of energies are we talking about you hear all kinds of sort of numbers that get thrown out and um I listed down here a couple of different stats for the overall energy and the specific energy 
due to these hurricane processes. Right. So how much energy does a typical hurricane put out, Shannon? Well, um, if you're looking at just the goes what goes into cloud and rain production, uh, we're looking at 5.2 times 10 to the 19th joules per day. Okay, that's a big number, 10 <laughs> to the 19th. Uh-huh, yeah. So that translates into 6 times 10 to the 14 watts. That's pretty big. Yeah, so <laughs> for comparison here, mm-hmm. the Hoover Dam is a 2,000 megawatt station. So mm-hmm. mega would be ten to the six, and then it's two thousand. So that's two times ten to the ninth. Uh huh. Yeah. And that's Hoover Dam. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking about six times ten to the fourteenth. Right. Right. And so that's, that's uh. That's just cloud and rain production. Yeah, that's a lot of energy. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's not even all of it. <laughs> and so if you're going to talk about um, the wind energy that's generated or the total kinetic energy, now you're talking 1.3 times 10 to the 17th joules per day, uh, which is 1.5 times 10 to the 12th watts. Right. So, you know, it's only three orders of magnitude more power than Hoover Dam. Uh, right, exactly. And that's assuming uh, 90 mile per hour winds over 40 nautical miles. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you combine this together, uh, the energy in a hurricane, I mean, that's pretty a typical hurricane, um, that's equivalent to half the worldwide electrical generating capacity. For in- what period of time? Um, I... For the period of time that the hurricane is in existence? Uh, well, I mean, this is in a per day. These energies are a okay, per day. Yeah. So I think it's per day. Wow. Yeah, for one hurricane, one normal hurricane. So with two hurricanes, which we just recently had with Matthew uh-huh. and Nicole, uh, yeah. they were dissipating the equivalent of the entire world energy production. Right, exactly. Isn't that unbelievable? Yeah, that is. <laughs> I mean, you hear about it in like nukes and it's this many, you know, whatevers, but that's that's crazy so yeah if we i mean could something only... like 2000 hoover dams still doesn't mean anything so right yeah like if we could only harness this it seems hmm. wasn't there yeah. a movie about that i think so <laughs> i think there's a few on sci-fi yes I, I believe that is true um so that's a big that's a big atmospheric blob out there doing a lot of stuff that's a lot of heat movement and it's interesting to think that we need that kind of huge amount of energy to sort of transfer that heat to help our temperature budget reach balance. That's interesting to think about. Yeah. So, so. with hurricanes, you know, we're talking about the typical hurricane, but let's talk about the big hurricane. <laughs> That's what everybody wants to talk about. Um, I found this, what I assume to be a defunct website, because some of the stats I knew were wrong. I didn't even include it in here, but it's worth mentioning because it's kind of parlor parlor tricky. Uh, the hurricane.com was this website, and it had stats on sort of everything you would want, but it has not been um, updated because there, a couple years ago we had Patricia, which actually broke a couple of records. But what do you mean by strongest or biggest hurricane? What do you want to know? Well, let's see. I mean, there's a lot of things you could think of that define the strength of a hurricane. So let's start with the most obvious meteorological one, which is the lowest pressure. 
Right. So the lowest pressure uh, was a Western Northern Pacific typhoon. So I say that because it's called a typhoon. Uh, tip in 1979. And its lowest pressure recording was 870 millibars. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for people that don't think in millibars, I didn't even put inches of mercury. I refused to go that far. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a millibar is the same as a hectopascal. Yes, exactly. So if that helps anybody, <laughs> if it does help anyone, um, so like normal weather is what ten twenty five point four millibars. Yeah. Okay, so that's normal. Eight seventy. That's a big deal. I actually thought the answer was Patricia, which was a Pacific storm in twenty fifteen, um, but that made it down to eight seventy two millibars. But that's pretty close. It was close. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think there might be some. There could be reporting error. I don't know. Um, but that's a really low pressure system. Yes. Like, <laughs> like really low. <laughs> I mean, you know, so the, let's see, it's 101,325 pascals is typical mean sea level pressure. Mm-hmm. But if you go to somewhere like, I don't know, where I am, mm-hmm. uh, well, not right now, where I, where I normally yes. am in Pennsylvania, <laughs> uh, I am above much of the atmosphere right now, yes. but, uh, <laughs> You know, we're 900-something millibars, absolute pressure, but we all correct that to what it would be at sea level so we can make maps that are independent right. of our elevation. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, but these are, these are by oh. definition, a lot of the modern ones anyway, because they're from uh, drop sons that are dropped out of airplanes that we'll talk about next week. But they are the definition of sea level pressure because it is the pressure when the sand hits the water. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> they're the exact uh, definition. Um so that was that was my first thought too. I, uh, pressure is what I want to see when I'm like, well, how strong is it? Because that's just sort of the, I mean, we we even call storms that are really here over land that have really low pressures. We call them low pressure bombs. So, you know, that's definitely fitting in this case. Um, but besides pressure, I mean, the wind speed pro- is probably what most people think of when they're talking about strength of a hurricane. Uh, probably, yeah. Yeah. So. This one uh, does go to Patricia. Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> um, well, then, but it depends on how you define highest wind speed. <laughs> oh, it is so true. So I picked the most impressive highest wind speed, which is the one minute sustained winds, which is kind of ridiculous because I feel like one minute is a gust, but it's really not. Gusts are seconds. Um, right. So Patricia had a one minute sustained wind speed of 215 miles an hour. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. One minute at 215 miles an hour. I mean, if you're talking about like race cars that go 200 miles an hour, they're doing that for three seconds. (laughs) Two seconds. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like That that would do some damage. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I mean, like you couldn't drive a car at that speed for one minute. It would shake apart. Um. But, I mean, the number two is still pretty good, too, and that's uh, Wilma, and that was a North Atlantic hurricane in 2005, and that came in at 185 miles an hour. Yeah, I mean, either of these could, you know, you can easily compare this to a small tornado. Oh, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's... I mean, 215, that's nothing to shake a stick at in a tornado. That's that's a pretty big deal. No, no, not at all. Yeah, um, most of the... Most of, like, the peak sustained winds and the next round of, like, one-minute sustained winds were around the 160 mark. So also still pretty good. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's a mid, 
you know, F something, F2, F3, something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's see, 215 on the old scale would be an F4. <laughs> yes. But that's a whole other show. It sure is. <laughs> um, I also wanted to, because I'm obsessed with Patricia, mostly because I was teaching a class at the time, Patricia came around and we were talking about El Nino and it just was a perfect real life teaching moment, um, <laughs> was I was trying to look at the most quickly developed uh, hurricane and Patricia didn't fall into this because actually, I guess it was a tropical cyclone for a really long time. And it hung around and it was really convoluted and they didn't know which way it was going or if it was going to strengthen and it would weaken a whole lot and they thought it was done and then it came back. But it actually turned into a Cat 5 hurricane virtually overnight, which was a big deal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's a really good, um, Noah put out a really great report on Patricia because it was so unusual and it actually didn't even, it hit Mexico, but it was so quickly over that it didn't cause a lot of this flooding damage and uh, storm surge damage that you see like we're seeing now. Right. So um, I included a link to that because it was actually a really good report and it was very interesting. So what about, and this is a hurricane that there's been a lot written about, the deadliest hurricane. Right. And so this is the Galveston, Texas hurricane in 1900, um, which where there's between eight and 12,000 people is what is reported, uh, could have died. And that was a pretty bad deal. Right. And there's a really good book about this called Isaac Storm. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's super excellent. Um, There's also a really cool, if you've been to Galveston or if you're going, you definitely need to see. There's a big statue um, right along the seawall sort of in memory of this. Um, Galveston is no stranger to hurricanes. They get hit a lot. Ike did a lot of damage. And then I think one hit there just a couple of years ago that did some damage too. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really interesting book. Um, that's quite good. Yeah, and it's short. It's a very conversational book. It's an easy read. Yes. Um, I guess the last thing when I was trying to think about like hurricane stats that people would be interested in was the most costly. But this one I actually found a lot of conflict about, which mostly has to do with converting currencies and all that jazz. All right. And then, you know, do you do it in then dollars and now dollars and what? Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, you know, how long out do you go in terms of counting the damage associated with it? Because we're still having damage from Katrina, which is what I found um, to be the most costly at over $47 billion today dollars. Um, wow. Yeah. But I also found some estimates where they think Sandy, which was the storm that hit the Northeast um, a couple of years ago, was around that same mark, about $50 billion. Right. And I remember Sandy. Yes. <laughs> and I, I remember joking. So... Of course, New York was very hard hit. Yes. Uh, In central Pennsylvania, we had heavy rain. I mean, that's about it. Uh, There was some moderate flooding, but we had nothing compared to what the people on the coast were getting. But they had shut down school and told all non-essential personnel to leave. Wow. And the bus driver was from Oklahoma. And there were some people that were really worried about this storm. And he and I joked, you know, I said, do you know what we call this in Oklahoma? The kid <laughs> said no. And he looked over and he goes, breezy. And, <laughs> and went on. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
we didn't get it that bad, but it was really rough on areas like New York. Oh, City. it it was, and this is like, how do you count that? Because I know they're still going through. And I mean, they're still working on recovery and then there's a whole lot of things that are embroiled in the court system. And so does that get counted in terms of the costly amount of the hurricane? I I don't know. So that was a contentious list. But um, Katrina, Sandy and then Andrew that hit Florida in 1992 were the ones that were consistently at the top from costliest. Right. And So. so the last thing that we should probably talk about is you've mentioned Cat 4 and Cat 5. So we should probably define those. <laughs> right. Um, we, I guess we could have done this at the beginning, but there's only so many obscure <laughs> wind cutoff speed jokes that I could handle. So <laughs> <laughs> um, so we use, I mean, people are probably familiar with, you know, hurricanes are categorized, but people may not know. It's um, the Sapphire Simpson hurricane wind scale. There's also some really interesting stories behind Sapphire and Simpson and how this got made. But for now, we'll just talk about what it is. And it's really similar to how we categorize tornadoes with the enhanced Fujita scale, which is you look at sustained wind speeds and also the damage that you would get. Right. And so this is where we get those ratings of it's a Cat 1, it's a Cat 2. Cat 5 makes most people think of Ethernet cable. But, right, exactly. <laughs> right. So uh, Cat 1 is the 74 to 95 miles an hour. That's a whole number. <laughs> yeah, that one's at least divisible by five. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> let's see. Then we'll skip up. A Cat 3 is 111 to 129. Mm-hmm. And then super bad scary is 157 uh, or higher. Which there have been several that were much higher, as we said. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yes, this makes no sense. 157 miles per hour is 137 knots or 252 kilometers per hour. Right. Uh, but in those kind of winds, pretty much it's it's a giant scrub brush. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, actually, you should probably go to our little National Hurricane Center um, Sapphire Simpson scale because there's a cool little animation that takes you through what that damage would look like. Going all right. the way from, you know, Tropical Depression up through Cat 5. Right. So, and I love the National Hurricane Center website. I check it all the time whenever there's hurricanes just to stay uh, informed. It's really interesting. So you should definitely check that out. Yeah. And so, you know, right now they've got Nicole and there's really doesn't look like there's anything else that we're no. monitoring at the present time. No, that's she's it. Yeah, some of the pictures of Matthew from the space station were incredible. Man, they really were. And I would urge you to go back and look at the pictures of Patricia from the space station as well. Unbelievable pictures. Right. But I think we should probably stop there because there's a whole lot more to talk about about hurricanes. Yeah, we didn't even get to talk about hurricane hunters, the the airplanes that fly through them. I know, which is terrifying and awesome. So, uh, yeah, um, we should leave that for next time. All right. So I guess that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Was that a that... cowbell and bear bells? No, that was just the cowbell. It was just resonant. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this week you picked a paper that I'm actually uh, kind of excited about. <laughs> Um, well, I feel like 
I've read a lot about this lately. Um, as you probably know, I'm really obsessed with Outside Magazine. And there was an article in this last month about how standing desks are dumb because <laughs> they're not actually doing anything for you. And they quoted some new research. So I actually wanted to look up and see what this research is. Um, also because I just got an email saying that I could apply and get this standing desk from my university if I wanted to. And I just never know if it's a good idea. Everyone I know who has one sort of migrates back to sitting, except for like two people. So I wanted to look up and see if there's anything in this. So I found effect of standing or walking at a workstation on cognitive function a randomized counterbalance trial uh, from Bantoff et al. And this is pretty new. It's from February of this year. Right. And one reason I'm kind of excited about this paper is because I I tried several years ago, and I wrote a blog post about it. <laughs> I committed to the standing desk. <laughs> I changed my computer setup and everything. I was going to be standing all the time, and I had a stool for when I got really tired. And I... I tried very hard for probably a month, <laughs> and my feet were constantly sore. It was constantly some form of angry <laughs> because my feet were sore, and I eventually went back to sitting, like you I, said. I thought you might like this paper. <laughs> but I have a desk right now that is motorized up and down. Okay. And okay. I do actually enjoy... I'll sit at it for a while, and then maybe in the afternoon after lunch, I'll stand for an hour or so and do some work, and then I'll go back to sitting. So I'm not standing a lot, but I am standing some. I definitely don't feel, you know, some people say that they feel so much more like a genius when they're standing. Uh, <laughs> that didn't work for me, and this paper seems to confirm that. It does. And so um, this paper set out to look at whether and and this was interesting too because it's focusing on your cognitive function so can you think better if you're at a seated desk if you're at a standing desk or if you're at one of those weird ones with a treadmill attached to it oh the walking um, desks yeah yes the walking desks so they're looking just for not for like health benefits for it but for cognitive benefits for it um because there's a lot and i found this in the literature too even a lot of universities are trying to go to standing desks in classrooms. So mm, I don't know how I feel about that. I know how I feel about it. <laughs> it's dumb. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but, I mean, that's a lot of money. That is a ridiculous amount of money. And so this study looks at, is there any cognitive uh, gain to doing this? Um, and I will say, I mean, there's not actually a whole lot of meat to talk about because we're not cognitive psychologists. <laughs> which is what most of the paper is about <laughs> in, right. terms, in terms of the test that they give people. But they took, um, how many was it? 45. So there's all kinds of, they went into a really good background on um, sort of the tests that have been done so far. And if you're actually wanting to get some data about any of the benefits of walking or standing desks, this is a good paper in terms of background because there's a lot of background research that say, you know, well, if you are at this walking desk, you're boosting up your metabolism. So that's good. Um, a lot of walking and standing desk people don't have the musculoskeletal complaints that people that sit all day do. So 
Right. That's good. Not like your feet hurting, but... I'll say, though I to guess. explain my grumpiness, it does say musculoskeletal pain is associated with reduced work productivity. There you go. So... Um, so, and I love this. A lot of the studies say that standing desks reduce your overall sitting time during the day. No kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. So that one was kind of dumb. <laughs> but That's um, what happens when you plot everything against everything. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, what I thought, too, was they were saying that they want to look at this um, because of this sort of increase in walking and standing desks. Because they're saying that um, prolonged sitting in the workplace may result in increased rates of obesity and other chronic health conditions. Okay, obviously. Um, but the reason people are really looking into this is because it says there are findings that recreational and physical activity outside of work hours do not offset the negative effects of sitting all day. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, we know that sitting all day is bad, but maybe standing isn't all it's cracked up to be either. So maybe if we walked slowly. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <laughs> this seems really weird to me. Um, and so the test that they sort of modeled theirs after also looked at walking and standing desks. And what they found was that the walking desks, the people were asked to perform this sort of finger tapping test. I guess this is people in psychology would understand what this is. Um, and people that use the walking desk actually performed this at a lower level than people using the standing desk or seated, which led them to believe, oh, well, walking desks actually don't give you any benefit. It's actually making your muscular times, you know, worse. Um, but there was actually, they thought that there was a flaw in the study that I thought was really interesting about that. Right, because, I mean, I know people that have walking desks that swear by them. Right, and so they said, I thought this was super cool, um... <laughs> They said that that wasn't the finger tapping test wasn't a good uh, measure of these cognitive functions because as you're walking, you might automatically tap your finger with the rhythm of your walking, which okay, is going to be yeah. yeah, which is going to be slower. Say if you're standing and tapping your finger, but you're walking at a slow pace, you might actually tap slower just because of that rhythmic nature. Right, or if you were a band nerd, you're tapping in some terms of, is, you know, exactly. 4, 8, or 16. <laughs> right, which is how you're you're walking, 8 to 5, right? Right. Eight to 5 yards, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that was interesting. It's got a much fancier name called phasic coupling of motor movements <laughs> so, between finger and legs. Um, yeah. You know, patting your head, rubbing your tummy. Yeah, coupling. exactly. Too hard. Um, <laughs> but in this test, they took – now, I thought that this was sort of a – Obviously, it's a pilot or something because this seemed to be like the worst thing. They have 45 students, undergrad students, that with the average age of 22 years old. So these are average to high average intelligence and reported low caffeine use. Which well, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't believe that any undergraduate is low caffeine use. I thought that was really interesting, too. It said less than one cup of caffeine a day. Um, <laughs> that's why there but, were only 45 right exactly so this is a really healthy um, healthy group and they actually even tested them in terms of their levels of depression because um, levels of depression or anxiety um, negatively affect cognitive test performance and so they didn't want to have that and so they screened everyone for that everyone passed that and um, then they randomly put assigned these students and they did this on the same day 
the test were seven days apart at the same time of day um, to either sit, stand, or walk, and then perform a huge battery of cognitive tests. Yeah, and there are a few in here that you know we'll go over. Some of these I'd never heard of. Some of them I had. For example, the the Stroop color word test. Mm-hmm. Have you? I mean, people have seen this probably online before. It's right. where they show you words like blue, red, yellow, green, and they're colored the color that the word says. Like the blue word is in blue text, the red word is in red text, and then they use conflicted naming. <laughs> so, like the word blue would be written in red ink, yeah. and you're supposed to respond red. And it reminds me of that scene from Liar Liar, where he's trying to write the color of the pen. Yes, oh, that's uh, exactly. Because it's really hard to do. It is. I actually was a paid participant in one of these studies, because <laughs> I am shameless when it comes to making money as an undergrad. And it was so hard. I had to do that test. It was so hard. You think you're smart, and then you're like, what is happening to my brain? Right. <laughs> Yeah. And so, yeah, there was that. There was uh, some digit stuff. Uh, let's see. There's another one that I thought that I had recognized in here. Oh, was... yes. Repeating a number, series of numbers presented to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, the average person can remember roughly 10 digits. That's why phone numbers are 10 digits long. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, they said they did a couple of things that weren't done in the past test, which was this visual information processing speed stuff. So um, keying in uh, numbers on a keyboard based on their presentation. So that was just some of the, it was a very large battery. It said less than 60 minutes um, of cognitive tests, though. Right. Because you would get tired. Right, exactly. Um, so the discussion on this paper, which I love a lot, the very first sentence says, the results of the present study did not support the hypothesis. <laughs> That's always what you want to have to write. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> um, so it's just that. Um, they said that there was no difference between sitting, standing, or walking. Like, not even a little bit of statistical difference between the cognitive function of the subjects. On any right. of those. Right. And we have to stress that this is just the cognitive function, not that sitting is healthy for you. Right. Correct. Yes. Nothing like that. So it's just, does a standing desk or a walking desk actually make you perform better work? And right. the answer is no. Right. So I guess I'll be happy with my sitting for a while. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so what I kept thinking is these are really young adults, you know, and, and they actually address this. Um, they're talking about maybe this would be you'd get different results if you um, looked at sort of the pool of people that are more commonly office workers, which is a little higher in terms of the age and also <laughs> a little um, less in shape right? as well. Um, so they said that, you know, maybe it would be different if you were using that population to do these tests. Right, yeah, I think that would be the obvious next step with this one. But it was pretty interesting to see that there weren't really any uh, benefits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I think this has a big deal to do, and I double-starred this because I'm so terrified that our university is going to say, we should do this, this is a great idea. <laughs> when it's like, you know, students are in class for, what, 75 minutes at the most? 
Right. Or if you're taking one of my exams, two hours, but hey. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, so how is this really going to benefit if we come in and try to change all this stuff? Um, and according to this, which is the average university freshman, even probably, or I mean, average university undergrad, and that's probably a little old for an average university undergrad that shows that there's no difference at all. So don't waste your money on this. Yeah, I would even think it would be harder because, you know, you're trying to take good notes and trying to answer questions or clicker questions or whatever and you have yeah. to always spin down and get stuff out of your bag. And yeah, I just think it would be more difficult in the university classroom setting. I think so too. And I think it would be um, more distracting as well. Yeah. Maybe that's, I mean, how are you going to text when you're standing there? It's just, how are you going to do it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I thought that was interesting. I thought you might enjoy that as well. Yeah, no, that was a great find. Yeah. So if you have ideas for fun papers or for shows, which we're lining up some interviews, I'm very excited that we have multiple guests we do. Mm-hmm. coming up yep. soon. Uh, we'll, we'll just leave you with that and that we're very excited <laughs> about them. Uh, <laughs> But if you have any ideas, you can go ahead and write those into us. Or if you have a comment, send that in. We haven't had an audio comment in a while. So if you want to do that, just whip out your phone and use the voice recorder app or the voice memo app and record us a little note and email it in. Shannon, how can they get hold of us? Please do. Um, send those to us. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, I would say when we're not traveling, we're hanging out in the Slack chat room, but John's probably in there all the time anyway, because he's that kind of nerd. Um, swung. I'm always on my iPhone. <laughs> exactly. Uh, swung.rocks, and that's at the Don't Panic channel. Um, we're on Twitter at Geo underscore Lehman, at Shannon Doolin, and at Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 